Today, we're going to be continuing our Utah series by asking the question, what's the deal with the Dugway Proving Ground? What's the deal with that? The Dugway Proving Ground is located in the desert about an hour and a half southwest of Salt Lake City. It's huge. It's the size of Rhode Island, so that's like 1,200 square miles. The Utah Test and Training Range is also there. It's a separate plot of government testing ground north of Dugway, and it is roughly twice the size. So these two are kind of bisected by I-80, making up this huge area of ground that the government can use to test different things, as we're going to talk about. Why do we have this? What's the purpose of the Dugway Proving Ground? The mission of the Dugway Proving Ground is to give the United States a supposedly secure, isolated environment where they can test advanced weapons like chemical weapons, biological weapons, along with their effects. First, let's delve into just thinking about for a second what the history of biological and chemical warfare is in the United States and worldwide. Humans have been resorting to some form of biological or chemical warfare for millennia. So go back three, 4,000 years and you're finding ancient civilizations using diseases like the plague or tularemia as weapons. Most recently, diseases like anthrax were trialed by both sides in World War I and World War II. Chemical warfare is more of an industrial revolution byproduct with the most extensive use of chemical weapons notoriously in World War I. World War I was just this grimly perfect arena for chemical warfare because you had these entrenched forces stuck in stalemates that lasted for years. Most famously, chlorine and sulfur mustard gases were used, and these resulted in over a million casualties, with many soldiers and civilians just left permanently disabled in addition to the people who were killed. This was so horrific that after World War I, the Geneva Protocol prohibiting the use of poison gases and biological warfare was signed in 1925 and went into effect in 1928. Despite this agreement, numerous violations of this protocol have been observed since then, as quickly as World War II and even a little bit before that. World War II ushered in an arms race of chemical and biological weapon development on both the Axis and the Allied side. As a side note, while the United States did sign the 1925 Geneva Protocol, it was never even fully ratified by the United States Senate until 1975. The United States really got into biological and chemical warfare in a big way as they were entering the fray in World War I. As they were developing weapons, the, the weapons were becoming too big for the Army's testing facility in Sandy Hook, New Jersey. So they built a new facility in Maryland in 1917. This facility, the Aberdeen Proving Ground, included the Edgewood Arsenal. Today, this area is still in existence roughly 35 miles northeast of Baltimore on I-95. Here, there were federally owned plants that produced America's chemical weapons for World War I. This included mustard gas, phosgene, several others. Lots of these agents were produced and shipped overseas for use in the war, and eventually the war ended in November 1918, but not until after about a year of the United States supplying some of these chemical weapons. So that's World War I. What about World War II? In World War II, it was well known several of the Axis powers made extensive use of chemical warfare agents. The Italians used them a lot in their conquests of Africa. 
Germany had very large stockpiles of things like mustard gas to begin with. Germany would go on to develop nerve gases like Tobin. And how's this for messed up? They would have the prisoners in their concentration camps manufacture or assist in manufacturing the gas and then would test it out in the prisoners. It's like every little layer on Nazi Germany, the more you peel it back, you're like, it can't get any worse. And then there's, there's pretty much always something worse there. So you can understand why the Allied forces would be very concerned about how hard Germany was working on their weapons of mass destruction. Germany infrequently deployed chemical weapons in open combat with Allied forces, but they did do it on a couple of occasions. The Imperial Japanese Army also started using large amounts of asphyxiating gases uh, as early as 1937 in its campaigns against other Asian countries especially. The Allies from the beginning of the war also started developing chemical agents, Britain prepared to use poison gas and anthrax to repel Germany, but they were keeping it in reserve. They were only going to use it if German forces invaded their shores. The proactive use of chemical weapons in the bombing of Nazi Germany was discussed with Winston Churchill, but eventually the idea was dismissed because there was this fear that the Nazis would then retaliate with their own chemical and biological weapons. And for the Nazis, they had the same reasoning for why they didn't use chemical weapons more freely against the Allied forces. They were worried about retaliation. This idea is called mutually assured destruction, where, where these weapons of mass destruction will not be utilized sometimes because of fear of retaliation. And obviously this went on to play a big role in the Cold War and this standoff with nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and the United States later on in the 20th century. So you might be saying to yourself, hey, that's all well and good, Cross, but where does the Dugway Proving Ground come in? So you're, t you're, t you're giving me all these dates, all these facts, but what, what's the point of the Dugway Proving Ground? Where does this come in? So remember that the United States had this testing facility from World War I in Aberdeen in Maryland, the Edgewood Arsenal. And as America entered World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they decided we're really going to need to ramp up the development of our chemical and biological agents because we see that the Axis powers are using these, we're going to need to be able to defend ourselves. Remember, the Aberdeen Proving Ground is less than an hour from Baltimore. That's smack dab in the middle of the Northeast Megalopolis, which is one of the largest, most densely populated areas in the entire United States. So testing a large-scale amount of chemical and biological weapons there just does not seem like a good idea. I'm not a chemical or biological weapons tester, but... Yeah, seems kind of like a dumb idea. So the United States decided, hey, we've got all this uninhabited land out in the American West. There's nobody for miles and miles and miles. We've got these big areas of desert. Let's start a more remote testing site. This is kind of where they find Dugway, Utah. It's just close enough to Salt Lake City where it's maybe easier to get people in and out of there but it's still way, way out in the desert. And you can have this, as I said, huge Rhode Island chunk of land that you can use to test your weapons. They started building the Dugway Proving Ground in 1942. And right off the bat, this place became an essential testing site for toxic agents. Things like chemical delivery systems, dispersal systems for biologic weapons. Because of the scale of the weapons that were being developed, they were able to 
do full-scale deployments of weapons in a way that they never had been able to do before. In fact, this remote site in the desert provided enough space that they were able to construct actual replicas of German and Japanese villages to test weapons on. The United States was looking at this time to kind of perfect this technique of firebombing. So if you've ever read Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, you might be familiar with this idea of firebombing. And this is also called saturation bombing. It's essentially these bombs that are designed not necessarily to make huge, huge explosions that just level buildings, but they're designed to burn really hot and cause fires in large swaths of cities to kind of destroy cityscapes by fire rather than by targeting certain specific areas with explosions. As you can imagine, the effectiveness of firebombs is dependent on their ability to actually cause fire. Who would have thought? And so they needed to be able to test the bombs that they were developing against construction similar to that of their enemies. Combination of bomb materials, construction methods, materials, all going to determine how effective your firebombs are. So as such, in order to test the effectiveness of the bombs, they constructed these replicas of German and Japanese cities out in the middle of the desert and used them to test the weapons against. Looking at pictures of these villages is totally surreal. It's just very bizarre. You can find them online. There's a lot of different articles with, with pictures of the villages. Highly recommend checking them out because it's just very weird to see. The Japanese village they kind of generated to look like just a typical middle-class Japanese area. And they actually hired an architect super familiar with Japanese architecture, who was a protege of Frank Lloyd Wright named Antonin Raymond. Uh, Raymond had been living in Japan, and he designed a bunch of buildings in Japan and was actually quite a prominent architect there. Even after the war, he returned to Japan and continued designing buildings, and a lot of the academic and religious buildings that he had designed are still held up as like examples of phenomenal modern Japanese architecture. It's crazy the amount of detail they went into building these buildings. It was down to, they would have chopsticks sitting on the table. They would have authentic clothing in the closets, children's toys. It was down to the most minute detail. The German village was no different. It was built with the help of architect Eric Mendelssohn. He was a Jewish German who was primarily known for kind of this uh, art deco kind of style, very prominent German architect prior to the Third Reich taking over. And as a Jew, you know, he had to flee the country. So in 1933, he bounced around. He lived in Britain for a while, lived in Israel for a while. Eventually, in 1941, he moved to the United States and started teaching at UC Berkeley. The United States took him on as a consultant to help them build this German village, and they wanted it to look like the most densely populated areas in central Berlin. Just like the Japanese village, very minute details down to the silverware on the table, down to the way that the rooms were decorated, just absolutely crazy, crazy meticulous detail. The first time they made these villages, it took them almost two months to construct them, and it cost around a half a million dollars. They were able to use these villages to test a bunch of different bomb designs and fuel mixtures to see what was going to cause the most destruction, with the goal being they wanted to incite a firestorm. So a firestorm is when the blaze becomes self-sustaining and generates its own wind up to like 70 miles an hour and is essentially impossible to put out. Interestingly, kind of what they found was that the light construction materials in the Japanese village was easier to catch on fire, 
but the heavy furnishings of the German houses would eventually burn hotter and be harder to put out once they did catch on fire, so they had to tweak their bomb design for the two different places based on that. The most infamous bomb tested here was the M69 bomb, which they filled with this gelatinized gasoline that had been invented at Harvard. The gasoline, when it would catch on fire, was capable of burning at temperatures as high as 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1,200 degrees Celsius. That is so hot. That is hotter than anything I could possibly imagine. Eventually, that substance would get a more catchy name than M69. It would go down in history as napalm. In addition to use in firebombing Japan in World War II, the United States kept napalm in its arsenal and used it extensively in the war in Vietnam. Over the course of 10 years in Vietnam, the United States would go on to drop 676 million pounds of napalm on the jungles and villages and enemy encampments of Vietnam. So eventually World War II ended, right? 1945 rolls around, the war ends. What becomes of Dugway Proving Ground at that point? After World War II, the government found that there was no need for Dugway at the present moment. Cold War hadn't started yet, so they were like, wow, we got nothing going on. I guess we're just going to shutter this. Not too long after World War II ends, though, we enter into the Korean War, the Korean conflict. And during that time, the U.S. Army chemical, biological, and radiological weapons programs moved its headquarters to Dugway and reopened operations. This whole program is more concentrated at Dugway now than at the Edgewood Arsenal site, which had still been operational for a time. Edgewood still did some experiments and did kind of controversially some experiments on human soldier subjects until about 1975 or so. At Dugway, the government wound up performing thousands of tests over these post-World War II years, including chemical weapons, regular weapons, nerve agents, biological weapons, dirty bombs, actually, and they would even simulate nuclear fallout by heating radiologic material and measuring how the fallout went around that area. One of the interesting anecdotes of experiments that I found was that researchers were trying to model the use of rodents to spread brucella as a biological weapon, and this was in 1952. They ran a bunch of tests to evaluate the feasibility of, of spreading it using guinea pigs. So they made three mock cities of guinea pigs populated with over 11,000 little pigs uh, who, you know, gave their all for the U.S. of A., unfortunately. As the results were being presented to an army general, he kind of famously, sarcastically gave his appraisal of the results as saying, thankfully, now we know what to do if we ever go to war against guinea pigs. And I don't see that the United States has ever deployed brucellosis through rodents against an enemy to this point. So maybe wound up not being that useful of a weapon. A big turning point in the use of the Dugway Proving Ground came later in the 1960s. Guinea pigs notwithstanding, airborne dispersion is probably the most obvious efficient method for distributing a biological or chemical weapon. So a lot of experiments at Dugway went into looking at how chemical and biological weapons could be dispersed in some sort of aerosol form, maybe from an airplane or some other method. This obviously is very effective in terms of spreading that agent, but also is not the most precise way of going about it and could have a lot of side effects that are not intended, some collateral damage. This was demonstrated most famously. So in March of 1968, 
there were some farmers in Skull Valley, Utah. Now, Skull Valley, Utah is very near to the Dugway Proving Ground, just kind of north and west of the Dugway Proving Ground. It's very, very dry, kind of wide open valley. It's roughly at around the area of Exit 77 on I-80, kind of by Stansbury Bay on the Great Salt Lake. So March of 1968, these shepherds, ranchers in Skull Valley, find that their sheep have been sickened. And they're trying to figure out what's happening. They're like shaking, some are dead, some are salivating, tremulous, just having like a really terrible time. As we go back to look at the timeline, I think that it's relatively easy to construct what happened. So on March 13th, 1968, there are several tests of the nerve agent VX conducted at the Dugway Proving Ground and at the Utah test site, which is just to the west of Skull Valley. This included firing chemical artillery rounds. They were burning the nerve agent out in the open, and then they were also doing some airborne dispersal of the nerve agent by a fighter jet. On March 16th, so three days later, the ranchers report that three, so this is a lot of sheep, 3,000 of their sheep have died in Skull Valley, and eventually this incident would go down to be known as the sheep kill incident, very creatively named, but also sounds horrifying. Uh, and they, they were finding thousands more of these sheep were displaying signs of being sickened. A description of the ranchers call the police from the Tooele County Sheriff really just conjures up this really frightening scene. We didn't know what was going on. We got a call that said the army had been testing nerve gas and it put a shock in all of us. When they examined the sheep later, it was revealed that they likely had been poisoned by an organophosphate agent. So organophosphates are nerve agents. Uh, that act by inhibiting an enzyme in the body called acetylcholinesterase. So acetylcholinesterase usually breaks down acetylcholine, which is a neurostimulator that causes muscles to contract. It can also act to cause some salivation and other kind of signs that you'll see. When you're poisoned by an organophosphate, acetylcholine builds up to enormous levels and causes these sustained contractions of your muscles. Ultimately, your muscles will kind of poop out and fatigue and you'll develop this like complete paralysis just from exhaustion. And this affects not just the skeletal muscles, but also the diaphragm, which results in death by asphyxiation. Organophosphates are a key ingredient in a lot of pesticides, so it does this to bugs as well as humans and other animals. The government investigators of the sheep kill incident initially insisted that the sheep had been poisoned by insecticides applied to the fields and not by any sort of nerve agent. They said that these pesticides were likely on the grass, the sheep consumed them and developed this poisoning. Ultimately, over 6,000 sheep died, either directly from the poisoning or from being euthanized due to severe incapacitation from the effects of the nerve gas. The army did a study and later reported that while the study was non-revealing, they did feel it was warranted to compensate the ranchers for their losses. So I'm not sure what that sum was. I'm not sure if it fully made up for the effects on the sheep or any effects on the health of the ranchers, but they did eventually wind up compensating them while not admitting guilt. A few decades later, the 1970 report was released by some chemical warfare researchers that had examined the incident from Edgewood Arsenal, and that report revealed that small amounts of VX, which is an organophosphate, by the way, so that was the agent that the army was testing, was uh, found in the tissues of the dead sheep, and that VX was also found in the snow and grass samples recovered from the area where they were grazing at levels sufficient to account for death and poisoning of a sheep. Native American communities in the area also reported some after effects from the poisoning. Tribal leaders noted that several older persons living on the reservation died pretty soon after the sheep incident. 
and they've always assumed that it was related to this, although they haven't been able to definitively prove it. Some of the ranchers that were involved with taking care of the sheep also have complained of some chronic health issues subsequent to the incident, but again, have not been able to conclusively prove that the incident caused anything. But just the time course and what we know is going on does make it a bit suspicious. There was enough of an uproar about this incident that eventually Nixon banned open-air chemical weapons tests in the United States because of just this risk of after-effects or side-effects collateral damage on people and their industries in the areas that could be affected. Open-air chemical test bans notwithstanding, Dugway's still around today, baby. So the Dugway Proving Ground continues to operate. It is still a site for the development of defenses against biological and chemical weapons. And it's also served as a training ground for different special forces. While Dugway continues to be in operation, it still does not have a perfect track record. For example, in 2015, they accidentally shipped activated anthrax rather than inactivated anthrax to some partner labs for a research project. The Proving Ground has also been this hotbed for conspiracy theorists who believe that this is where the United States alien technology program has shifted from Area 51 due to all the scrutiny that's been placed on Area 51 and how that's kind of become almost a tourist destination or a dark tourist destination. Now they say that the United States has shifted its alien technology research portal to the Dugway Proving Ground because it's more obscure. If you're at all interested in checking out the Dugway Proving Ground, I've got some bad news for you. You're going to have to have a squeaky clean background and you're going to have to have an interest in a career there because the only way that you're going to really get inside reliably is to be employed there. There was a time in 2017 when they did allow some journalists in to take photos. You can find those up online. The Atlantic in particular has a really good spread on this. But for the most part, you can only get inside if you're working there. Now, you know I wouldn't leave you hanging in terms of getting you a knowledge nugget before you get out of this podcast. So I am going to leave you with today's Dugway Knowledge Nugget. You want some fries with that knowledge nugget? While Dugway has an important but dark legacy, there is one tangible byproduct of research done there that many of our listeners make regular use of. At the Granite Peak installation, which was the ultra-secret part of the ultra-secret Dugway that was used for testing biological weapons, during World War II, Allied forces tested an agricultural weapon. They tried several different compounds, but probably the most famous was a 91-pound bomb full of a compound called VKA, or vegetable killer acid, which sounds absolutely terrifying. Vegetable killer acid had devastating effects on broadleaf crops only. This herbicide is called 2,4-dichlorophenoxyacetic acid. It was used extensively in Vietnam to help with defoliage efforts to try to reduce the cover of the forest over enemy installations. But now you might know that is the principal ingredient of lawn care products like wheat and feed. So if you have a green, dandelion-free lawn, just remember, you have Dugway to thank. Thanks for listening to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross, reminding you that for more deep dives for long drives, for any knowledge nuggets that you want to uncover, feel free to visit us at our website, nerdroamer.com, or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at nerdroamer. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you can continue to roam wisely. Keep roaming, nerds.